Hello, everybody, and welcome to Friends of the Force, a Star Wars podcast. I'm your host, Brad. And I'm your host, Sarah. And this week on the show, we are talking about Star Wars, The High Republic, Quest for the Hidden City, written by George Mann, the latest metal grade novel in phase two of The High Republic. We are so excited because we've already talked about Path of Deceit. Uh, we've interviewed author Zoraida Cordova, who wrote Convergence. And here we are now talking about another installment. It's exciting. It's a good time. I am so glad to be back. I know we're a little late to the game, you know, like compared to our past releases and schedules. But as they say, better late than never. And the good news is books are forever. So you can you can listen to this in like two years from now and be like, well, this isn't late. I read the book just now. So it's all good. It's all good. I'm just really happy to be here finally talking about this book. And once again, diving back into the High Republic, because, you know, if you listen to this podcast before that we love this stuff. We love this stuff. So I'm really excited to talk about another middle grade because historically they've been really quite good. And um, spoiler alert, this one is no different. And if this is your first time listening to us and you are a fellow High Republic fan, welcome. You found the right place because as Sarah said, we dive into these things uh, quite extensively. Like our episodes tend to run on the longer side uh, and we go into very detail. Yeah, we like to go into like very heavy detail, very like thoughtful analysis of like the themes and the characters. And um, we're excited to talk about some of the notable themes from today's book, as well as the characters who we think are really cool and interesting. And um, that's kind of what you can expect from us. And before we get started, make sure if you're listening to be following us on all of our socials. So that future Higher Public episodes drop into your feed because we got one more left after this. We'll be talking about Star Wars Convergence very, very soon. So be on the lookout for that. But before we kind of like dive into our main conversation today about Quest of the Hidden City, we have to mention, like we do every single book discussion episode, our independent bookstore of the week. This is my favorite segment because I worked at an independent bookstore and I love independent bookstores. And independent bookstores should be your number one go-to place if they if you have one available to you uh, for your books because they help books stay in the communities uh, and and employ people in the communities where you live. Um, really, really important to me, especially around the holiday season. So if you are considering purchasing any books for your loved ones, uh, please consider purchasing them from your local indie. Or if you're going to purchase online, consider purchasing them from bookshop.org, which is an alternative to Amazon that um, shares their profits with uh, various independent bookstores. Uh, so yep, that's my soapbox pitch about that. But uh, my independent bookstore of the week, your independent bookstore of the week, listener, is the last bookstore uh, I don't think I've mentioned this one before. It's not on my list. If I have, I am sorry. But if I haven't, this is a good one because despite it not being a place I have been yet, I have sure seen a lot of it on Instagram. The last bookstore is California's largest new and used book and record store. Um, they are in uh, the downtown LA and they have 22,000 square feet in the Spring Arts Tower at Fifth and Spring in downtown LA. This place is one of the freaking coolest spaces I have seen in a while because they have such a interesting like visual language in this space. First of all, it's gigantic. You can probably roam around there for hours. Like it's probably just a great place to browse. Yeah, it looks huge. It's got like a very like old look to it as well with the with the wooden bookshelves. 
Yes. Yes. And there's so many rooms and different levels and the book tunnel that you can take selfies in. Um, and book so tunnel. it is thrive. Yeah. There's a book tunnel. Yeah. So this, this bookstore has a short film, a uh, short documentary attached to it. If you go to their, uh, website, lastbookstorela.com, lastbookstorela.com slash about, you can watch the short documentary, which if you, <laughs> that's what I'm doing after this. I love a short documentary. Those are some of my faves. Um, but yeah, if you, if you also go to their more and then photos or gallery, you can see the book tunnel. It's very cool. Um, I don't think they've revealed their secret as to how it stands. Um, cause it is curved, but yeah, it seems like a really, really cool space. Uh, for your Instagram, as well as for your book collection, which is the most important thing here, of course. Uh, so yeah, check out the last bookstore in LA if you ever find yourself in LA, which hopefully we will be back in LA eventually because I feel like I still have more things to explore there. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Let's, let's like hope, we were uh, in the Hollywood area, but like, I want to go to downtown LA. <sighs> yeah. Let's hope, uh, let's hope 2023 brings us back to Los Angeles at some point, please. Um, that'd be cool manifesting that into the universe. So we'll see. Right. Right. But yes. As Sarah said, support indie bookstores during the holiday season. If you can, and you'd be surprised you might find one in your area that you never even knew about. So go find out where they are. Well, also I would like to say before you do that, and if you don't have one in your area, for whatever reason, so many of these bookstores will uh, ship online to you. First of all, and second of all, bookshop.org. You can choose the bookstore you want to support. That's all. Now we can talk about Quest for the Hidden City. Absolutely. Well, let's do it, Sarah. Uh, as we've set up front, we're talking about Quest for the Hidden City. This will be a spoiler discussion. So if you haven't read the book, or if you want to know what's up and what's notable about it and what's interesting, keep listening. But I would highly recommend reading it. It is a very fun, quick book to read. Uh, it's a really spooky book at that. It has a lot of fun monsters, and it's set on a very dark and grim world uh and lots of things around the corner that are lurking and you have to be on the lookout for so first and last spoiler warning we are getting into it quest for the hidden city yes by george mann yes what did you think about quest for the hidden city uh you read path of deceit to start phase two and this was your second book that you read as part of phase two this is actually my first one that i read after i stole your copy oh, uh, when i visited that's true <laughs> uh, i you stole did. your your copy and uh, I read it and I sent it back to you or gave it back to you at some point. You gave it back uh, to me. Yeah. When we were in, in LA. LA. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of which, but what did you, what did you think? Like how has your high Republic journey been so far with phase two and how does quest for the hidden city fit into that? It is so interesting because I feel like we have always started in phase one with the adult novel and like trickled down to the YA novels and, um, well, actually, it's it's been adult novel, then middle grade, then YA. And they've kind of been structured like that as well. And for this one, we haven't done that. And I think the main number one reason is because simply the books were not released in that order. Um, and so we kind of are all adjusting on the fly. But also, you know, uh, the publishing folks have said that the phase two starts with the YA. And so we're like, OK, let's let's tackle that one first. So I feel like I'm working a little bit backwards based on, you know, historical precedent here. Um, but I will say that I I really enjoyed this book. Um, and it's not, you know, despite or because I haven't read uh, Convergence um, yet. But like uh, this one really feels like um, 
a really fun adventure story. Uh, it's written in a way that is uh, visual and detailed and is easy to just breeze through. Um, there's really a lot of, so it's like an action adventure novel and you really feel that action throughout the novel. Uh, it's punchy and fun every time that it pops up. Um, I, I, I felt hooked throughout. There was no time or when I was reading this book where I was like, I've got to put it down for now. Like where we're just going to take a break on this one. I was like, let's keep going. Cause I'm, I'm invested in these characters and how it's all going to come together. Um, also like, I think, and, and we'll probably continue to talk about this. There's a lot of really interesting themes that are happening here that I didn't expect for an action adventure zombie novel, uh, for eight to 12 year olds, but I accept it and I appreciate it. Um, but also like, this is a zombie novel. <laughs> <laughs> which I didn't realize I'd be so into, but every time, like every time things unraveled a little bit and we got more information about the monsters, I, I kept like, I annotated this copy and I kept writing zombie, zombie, zombs, exclamation point. Like I was so excited about the, the mutation zombie element. Yeah. And all of this totally makes sense too, considering George Mann is writing it, because if you know anything about George Mann and, uh, what he has written before in star Wars, he likes, I think he likes horror. I think he likes scary stuff. Like he has written uh, or totally. will be writing The Nameless Terror, which is part of the High Republic Adventures comic series. Uh, he also wrote Dark Legends, which was a whole book uh, following up on myths and fables, which is sort of like the dark, Spooky. shadowy secrets of the of the galaxy, like secret tales that you would, might read uh, to your kid at bedtime during the month of Halloween, right? So that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then also he wrote showdown at the fair, which we haven't gotten any of those very young kid books, like the flip through books yet for phase two. And I hope, I hope that continues because I, I do love, I do love the stickers in the back, but uh, so he cool. wrote one of those at least, which was, which was great, but uh, it's great having him write this book. And I, I think his knack for that really shined through like dark legends was very scary to read. And likewise quest for the hidden city was, was much the same. I think the setting was as spooky as some of the things that we were dealing with in terms of uh, the catacute uh, turning into zombies who, when they bled, it was not blood, but dark black crystals spilling out of them, which is just absolutely terrifying. It's just like another way to, to make that a little more scary than what you'd expect. And also just navigating underground tunnels and catacombs and figuring out what happened post mining disaster and what mm. happened to this abandoned city that's hidden inside the mountains and underneath the, underneath the ground, like it's hidden, the hidden city. Right. So that's, that's what I love the most about this book. I think just the sense of adventure and the sense of mystery surrounding every corner and our, our characters unpacking that throughout the story and also like a character like really who's in the background plotting on his own sorts of sort of becomes this like unexpected pro uh antagonist who is a threat to our characters and also like unveils more about what's happening with the miner's curse so all of that was really exciting yeah i i totally agree and um i agree that like he is the perfect choice to write this sort of book and that all of what we got in this book is totally expected in in a delightful way because leaning into the spooky stuff as well as um, the really like accessible and enjoyable and visual writing style um, is all kind of on display. And I think 
really enjoyable, whether you're an eight to 12 year old, which the book is, uh, you know, aimed towards, or if you're an adult who wants a fun romp adventure, uh, and wants to spend an afternoon with a little spooky mystery. Um, like this is an appropriate book for that as well, for sure. Uh, and it's, you know, the stakes aren't so high uh, as to where you're feeling, you know, super stressed for your characters, but you still are worried about them because the stakes, uh, and the monsters are a bit scary. So it's a fun one. I will say one thing about the book for me was I didn't come away from it feeling as attached to the characters as I have in previous mm. middle grade installments, like, like race to crash point tower or uh, a test of courage, like with characters such as Ram Jamram or Emery or Vernestra Rowe. And I'm not sure if it's just the sheer size of characters that we're dealing with in this book. Cause we have the pilot, we have the doctor, we have the Jedi. We have the people of these planets and, um, and also the father and the son. So there's like a lot of uh, moving parts, whereas some of the other stories have felt a little more focused and honed in on maybe like one or two or three characters. So I think that is, is sort of one uh, kind of quote unquote drawback for me of this book. That being said, I had no problem otherwise like with the characters themselves. I thought they were all very interesting still and like very cool. And I'm excited to hopefully spend more time with them in the future, however much that might be, because we know the, the phase, phase two is going to be very short. It's only two waves compared mm -hmm. to three. Mm -hmm. um, will these characters be explored in other uh, uh, mediums like a YA or an adult novel, or will they be explored in comic form, like through the Nameless Terror, which isn't out yet. But I hope we get more of these characters is, is kind of what I'm saying. And um, that's sort of my, my larger question for phase two is like, how much time are we spending with these characters knowing it's kind of a temporary rewind on the High Republic story before we go back to present day? Um, but I mm. think so far, like all of the books pr pretty much have, have really given us some fascinating people to spend time with. Yeah. And ultimately, like, I feel like the characters' actions are going to have ripple effects. So even if we don't follow these characters again, um, like their stories ultimately will have meaning towards phase three uh, and towards the later stories in this phase. So I look forward to kind of discovering that and having those layers peeled back for us as readers and those like those wings to the readers. Um, I think down the line, that's I think that's been really rewarding so far, even jumping back in time. And that's one of those rewarding things about Star Wars is they can kind of weave in that way. Um, I will say that I agree with you about um, your criticism of the book. I think especially me who kind of sat down and, and read it pretty quickly, um, kind of almost all in one go, I did feel like I lost the character uh, characters a little bit and kind of had to really think about who was where. Um, because we're following multiple different groups, I kind of had to reorient myself a little bit every time we switched over just because there's no, um, you know, like subheadings in the chapters. Not that that's, that's probably partly me for just kind of deciding to devour it as opposed to reading it at a normal person pace. But, you know, um, that's something I noticed. But for me, ultimately, this is a book that some of the care, some of the, some books out there are really character focused. Like, the Alphabet Squadron trilogy, that is a book or those are books that are designed to teach you everything they could possibly teach you about the characters. It is slightly less about the plot because it is deciding to tell you everything, you know, about each and every one of those characters. Um, but this is a book where like the plot, the adventure of the story is coming before the characters. So I kind of just took it at that 
level and decided to just really run with it and be like, it doesn't matter. Nothing matters because I'm just on this adventure. Um, and not as a dig, but, uh, just as like a, a lens to approach, um, the adventure I was on. Um, I was like, Oh, and there's monsters. Like, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I just had a lot of fun with it. Um, despite it not kind of being as character focused as some of the other novels that we covered in the high Republic. Yeah, totally. I think that's, you hit the nail on the head. It's a different lens to to view this era through. And I think it is also a nice break from some of the deeper stuff, like coming off of Path of Deceit. That's a very deep, heavy book with some very uh, tough concepts to wrap your mind around. And then this is just, yeah, the thrill of it. The, uh, you know, I, 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 I loved turning the page and figuring out what was going to come next and like, would our heroes escape mm-hmm. and would they survive and what were going to be some of the, the big moments, you know, with, with characters like Salandra show and her awesome shield that she has that she just throws around like Captain America. And I freaking love that so much. I think that's just the coolest thing right. ever uh, that we haven't seen in star Wars. So yeah, it's, it's still such a fun book. Like you said, it's a, it's a spooky adventure. I love this. I think George Mann should write more Star Wars. And he is because we're going to read Battle of Jeddah very shortly uh, in like a month. Ah, so excited. I'm like, I'm like so excited about that because we keep getting not only like, I think, do we want to explore Jeddah like since Rogue One came out? And I'll speak for you in saying that as well. Right. Yes. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But also like we've been getting hints in these books so far and I'm like, ooh, I'm learning another detail about Jeddah. This is going to matter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it's gonna be george's first time doing adult fiction in star wars so that that's well, also, also notable for him yeah yeah and he's he's close friends with Kevin scott and Kevin has done what uh three two or th- yeah two of them right two audio dramas what? thus far uh dooku and tempest runner so i think yes. i wonder if yes. george took any pointers from Kevin or um you know what that what that writing relationship has looked like within the luminous beings group over at lucasfilm publishing so the slack channel yeah i just know that the the brilliant ideas were floating around between everybody um but especially Kevin and, and george and, and their friendship and how much time they spend with each other so mm. uh, and Kevin being somebody who's written a lot about jetta as well they both wrote life day treasury together which there are some uh there's a story in there about uh the convocation of of Jetta and and what that's all about and there's like a day during the year where the sun does a thing i don't i haven't read it quite yet i'm still a little behind on some books but they wrote that whole book together sort of in the style of dark legends and myth and fables which oh, maybe really? we'll get to talking about yeah. at some point because there are, are high republic things in there but yeah no all, all around like again just really really fun book and maybe with that being said we could uh, dive into it a little bit and talk about um some of the some of the like really notable present themes in this book yeah i think for this book the themes are where we're going to be able to dig into the most because uh they they kind of were surprising um in their depth and clarity and uh for for the audience that they were directed at um so where do you want to start with themes rad well, we mentioned we mentioned Salandra's show, so maybe we can talk about the idea of of the sword versus the shield, and yeah, totally. what the what the Jedi are supposed to represent. Because we know this is the height of the Jedi Order, and they are out and about within the galaxy, 
spreading the word of the Jedi, trying to understand the galaxy's people, provide aid where where they can. And and this is all also happening against the backdrop of the war uh, between Irim and Erino, uh, which they come to a peace agreement at the end of the book, but it's still causing a huge disruption to the entire galaxy with closed hyperspace lanes, ration food supplies, space battle debris drifting everywhere in the galaxy, which I thought was really interesting. And like pirates yeah, taking advantage of that chaos and plundering peaceful sectors. Um, so a mm. place like Gloam and um, Abadas uh, might not be prone to some of those things, right? And that's why we have these Pathfinder teams. And I guess the, the, the idea of the Pathfinders, we've, we've heard a lot about them. And this is the first book we really see them come into play like with their with their pathfinding droids and all of that what did you think of the idea of the pathfinders and what they represent within the order and like what they're trying to achieve they're really interesting figures um because i i don't feel like we totally got to see them fully utilized here and i only say that because we are seeing them in crisis as opposed to their day-to-day and i still would like to see their day-to-day um But it's clear to me, based upon how they're spoken about, is that they're really dynamic um, teams that are working to build connections and and connect with people and do whatever is necessary to connect Um, in some ways, which this can sometimes have a negative connotation, but they feel a little bit like missionaries in the sense that like they're going out to places to uh, meet and assist members of local communities. Um, So there's a there's a sense of that sort of idea here, but um, perhaps with a less uh, negative connotation if you're not necessarily a part of that group. but there's this quote kind of on 205 where, uh, for the first time, Rupert thought she understood why the Jedi were out there on the frontier, why Salandra was always so focused on doing whatever needed to be done to help people, whether that was dealing with diplomats or polit- and politicians or fixing water pumps on agricultural worlds, because it wasn't about them, the Jedi. It, was a, it wasn't about adventure and having fun. It was about doing what was necessary, about saving lives. And when a Jedi put themselves in danger, it wasn't for the thrill. It was because... Uh, someone needed to stand in the way of the monsters. And I think that kind of directly points to the situation that we're talking about with sword versus shield, but right. Cause that quote ends with always the shield as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but I think that really illuminated for me, the versatility of the pathfinder teams and the various roles that they play. It seems like no two days are alike in their work. The Jedi carry a, a huge amount of responsibility and they put a lot of that pressure on themselves i think because they want to achieve a certain type of of balance and and peace throughout the galaxy and um they have a genuine care for people but i think yeah padawan uh padawan rupert rupert Nertani is so interesting because she's sort of trying to figure her place out within the galaxy and understand that purpose like you're talking about which is so quintessential to the middle grade books is like what is my place in the world what is my identity i have a mentor figure like what can i learn from them but also like what do i know and what do i feel and how can i sort of merge those two things to to uh provide clarity for what i'm trying to do um Mm. and so for her i think the idea of the sword versus the shield um is, is is so fundamental to how she has to act during this adventure right um it says here quote Perhaps what Rupert had mistaken as sensible and boring in Master Show was really just a deep sense of compassion and duty. 
shielding everyone else from harm's way, just like she shielded Rupert every day. Now Rupert needed to be that shield too, for Rock, for Salandra, for the rest of her team, and for the Catacomb. And so throughout the book, it's really coming into focus for her. She's understanding like what, what she's supposed to be doing. And um, I love how that's represented through the sword and the shield, because we know the Jedi are always somebody who is like, uh, defense comes first, never offense, never on the attack, like only take a life if you absolutely desperately need to. And I think there are a couple of moments in this book where Salandra show uh, kind of shows compassion or mercy at first for yeah. an enemy that she's fighting. And then ultimately like that doesn't come and she has to put matters into her own hands. Um, so, and, and she's somebody who is completely emblematic of the Jedi code of like not raising arms only in defense of others. Mm. Um, and that she would always rather be the shield than the sword, you know? Yeah. And I think that there are times too, where Salandra shows compassion, where she ultimately like didn't have to, um, specifically when it comes to, uh, Rillick, who, who she says, you know, both her and, and Rupert end up taking the position of like, no, we're not going to hurt you. We're going to, even though like you are the antagonist of the story and that you've caused us harm and that you've uh, put us in dangerous situations, we're not going to kill you. We're going to still get you help um, for your condition as he has mutated and has essentially become a zombie. They could have left him there. They could have killed him and they choose to take him in and make sure that he's cared for. Um, you know, and that's something that that they didn't have to do necessarily. But of course, it is their their duty to do so, if that makes sense. Yeah, they're showing compassion over vengeance, right? That's so core to a Jedi's uh a Jedi's position and what they represent, right? It's that vengeance that leads to the dark side. And I, I always find that is some of the most powerful stuff with star Wars is when we show, mm. we show compassion despite what another person might have or might not have done. Uh, and seeing that at the end of this, uh, not necessarily super surprising just based on the, like the age group of the, sure, that the book sure. is intended for. Right. But I think it's also an important lesson to teach some of the youth, right? Like it, it is the, it is the shield not the sword in that instance, like put down your weapon and save somebody from themselves. Right. It's like what, what Luke Skywalker does in return of the Jedi, he throws down his weapon. And despite his father fighting him 10 minutes earlier, you know, he decides this is the man I love. And I think there is still good in him. And I, I want him to prove to me that there is good in him. Right. So likewise, maybe right. uh, Relic will get that chance. Yeah. And, and it seems like even if, even if, he doesn't kind of get that chance um, to prove himself that like all is well in that sense because he is getting care and because they did save him. Like it's compassion over apathy um, and not just compassion over vengeance, but it's compassion over feeling nothing at all. Uh, and like, that's, that's always a good thing in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're talking a bit about the sword and, and the shield, but I think one other prominent theme throughout this book, which I know is something you're, you've been very passionate about in our, our discussions off air is um, the way in which the natural world is depicted and um, how our resources are, are treated and how they're degraded over mm -hmm. time. And, and it, it exhausted to the point of uh, throwing a world, an entire world into turmoil. Did you want to mm -hmm. 
introduce us to that conversation and that idea that's that's pretty uh, ever ever present in this book? Yes. So one of the really interesting things that has popped up now in multiple 2022 novels for young people um, between Padawan by Kirsten White and Quest of the Hidden City here uh, are this conversation and these like really explicit conversation at books geared for young people about um, environmentalism, uh, how we treat the natural world, uh, degradation of resources, and ultimately our responsibility to the environment and ultimately to then one another. Uh, and I thought that this conversation was really interesting because when it popped up in Padawan, it felt really fresh in the sense that I feel like this conversation around environmentalism often comes um, with the context of the empire, right? Like we know that the empire went to a bunch of planets uh, and created mining, um, you know, towns or mining colonies or, you know, <laughs> mining prisons and stripped worlds of their resources. They destroyed worlds. We know that they were destructive. Um, but I feel like we in Star Wars tend to have less conversations and maybe it's just because they're less loud. Um, and maybe I'm totally missing some and I apologize if I am. Um, but like less conversations about just regular people and their responsibility to their environments. And I think that this is like a really interesting and vital conversation to be gearing towards young people. Um, well, I mean like the older folks need to hear it, but they're also the <laughs> ones that have already caused the problem, right? It's the young people who need right. to learn about the responsibility in order to do better with whatever world they inherit, right? Like, and that's they sort a whole of other conversation. Forget the truth um, of their own history, uh, which is another thing we'll discuss right. here shortly, but yes. Um, right, which also yeah. goes into Padawan, which is so fascinating. Um, and so basically we come to find out once our team, which our folks all meet up on Abydos, is that, um, you know, they are essentially stripping Gloam or have stripped Gloam of its resources, of this energy-rich soil, um, of these minerals so that they can power on Abydos and that mining these minerals made them, quote, uh, group, grow powerful, arrogant, and rich. Ultimately, they become greedy capitalists, right? They're hungry for more. Uh, and, and you know, rich arrogance, uh, greed that becomes their motivation as opposed to actually providing energy. Right. Um, and in doing that, not only did they strip this planet of its resources and they're running, they're literally, you know, days away from running out, but also they have harmed themselves and the planet because they right. have taken everything from it. And, uh, I thought was so heartbreaking to hear, but also just like such a clear and direct line to the world that we're living in today. We know that the actions that we're taking with regards to coal and oil and, and these like finite resources are harming the people that work in these resources. Uh, they're harming the people that you know consume the air, which is all of us. Um, so like. Um, I just found this conversation to be so interesting. And I just wanted to know if this was something you were thinking about while you were reading the book and like what observations you made while reading the book. This was definitely top of mind for me because may maybe I was primed from reading Padawan. And I like that you made the point of how we've really seen this most prominently just with the Empire 
they're building the Death Star. So they're, you know, they're ravaging worlds right. and they're making themselves present in these environments, these natural places. And that's something has been and always important to George, right? George Lucas is somebody that's like the empire is mm. technology and the Jedi represent like nature and like our um, intuition with the natural world. And like when those things clash, like what happens? And um, we've even seen that recently with star Wars visions as well. There were a couple of episodes where we see these very serene places. And uh, I think of Lapinocho is one place where, we get the flashback of this very beautiful lush planet and then the empire comes in, establishes themselves and they sort of take it over with this very funky looking technology machines, just infiltrating every crevice of this place. Right. Uh, and, mm. and you look at a place like, uh, uh, Gloam and, uh, Gloam has all of these underground caverns where they were excavating these resources like imagine how disruptive that is where you're creating entire catacombs you're creating entire mm. cities underneath the surface for miners to work in and to excavate resources and and yeah you're totally right it is a direct line to um, the ways in which how we excavate resources in our natural world and um especially like coal like coal is a very dirty resource and it's very harmful like coal factories um people get very sick from those and yeah uh, working in those and and i think that is interesting in this context because this is a planet that is not part of the republic quite yet they don't have the resources of the republic um yet they are they are quite literally killing themselves in the process they're killing themselves and and their planet and it says here um, they learn to consume while digging deeper into the bedrock, quote, stripping it of every resource we could find, uh, end quote, for a millennia. Uh, they realized they had murdered the sister planet. Like, that's like pretty, that's like pretty grim stuff there, right? Like, they, they murdered yeah. an entire planet, right? And we think of the word, uh, the word murder, like, blowing up a planet in the traditional sense of, of Starkiller and, and, and the Death Star, but also this is showing us the capacity, like you said, of capitalists destroying their own planet. They don't have to have that Imperial logo on their shoulder. They can just be right. people who are greedy and want to be rich and want to dig and dig and dig until they literally can't anymore. Well, I think that's like, um, not to completely derail the conversation from Quest, but like, I think that's like the great thing about Canto Bite uh, in The Last Jedi is it's like, hey guys, it's not just the regular folks, the resistance and the empire as major players or just like the people that we follow here. It's also about these greedy rich folks who are playing both sides and are making money off the war and are, uh, have an investment in keeping the war going. And like, that's their whole vibe. And then they just like go to the casino, you know, like, so I, I appreciate that story for bringing us that, uh, other aspect, those other players within like the global economy, I guess, or the galactic economy. I can't believe we're talking about the galactic economy, but here we are. Um, <laughs> yeah, this was also explored recently in, in the Princess and the Scoundrel because there was a lot of oh, conversation right. of of what happens in the uh, in the in the downfall of the Empire, especially when it comes to some of these planets who were kind of benefiting from the Empire, so to speak. Like, obviously, they're under the they're under the 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 boot of them, right? And and the fist is mm. tightening, so. There were definitely planets under imperial rule who were who ended up being complicit in it because they said, "Okay, well, if this is the only way we can do it, like we'll do it." But then also they're profiting from it in the long run. Well, yeah, and it's interesting because in this in in these sorts of situations, it's really not the fault 
of uh, the everyday folks who are no. yeah. just trying to survive, like in like in our own world, like the fault of per like human made climate change in our real world does not re- like land on you or me as individuals. It lands on the corporations that are, you know, putting so much nonsense into our water and our air, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As opposed to like our conversations with Andor, where it's like the ordinary people who go along with atrocity in this sense, like, um, you know, the prison guards or whoever, right. Who works in the empire and harms others in that way. Like they are complicit in the violence in a different way. Does I don't know if, I don't know if that distinction rings true to you. Uh, if it doesn't, you can say so. Um, I, I guess it's the idea that like you or I, our actions don't necessarily have the power to reverse climate change, for instance. Um, like we can each recycle a bunch more. Um, but like, you know, my contribution isn't going to, uh, change the planet necessarily, uh, not saying not to do it, but like, you know, it doesn't have the same level of impact. Whereas like, I feel like, um, the impact of, of like the guards in Andor or whoever, you know, in, in the ISB or Empire in Andor is like direct person to person violence that they could stand up to. And those things are what, you know, Nemec talks about with those ripples and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a matter of like systemic, uh, issues that start from the top. Like we, we can make changes in our everyday life that, that certainly help, but it doesn't move the needle quite enough. Um, because it it does start with the corporations who are polluting and who are, um, right. Right. Getting by, by like dumping, like environmental dumping. Right. And, um, unfortunately these people don't have the foresight to think well eventually you're going to destroy a planet enough where what was all of that worth anyways if you just ended up you know making money and then not ever being able to make money again because you literally don't have a home the planet's destroyed right and that's what happens here to, to the glow thing. they they murder their sister planet and then they're they're back on abadas which is again a barren place and it's like well what do we do now like Gloam is blighted, like the species there are extinct, uh, and people are sick. And now we're having to deal with a health crisis because we pushed way too far past what was uh, possible. Well, that's the thing is like the reason that they ignored that they were doing this is because they were rich with greed, you know, rich with money and rich with greed. And like they were not, they were choosing not to think in the long term because they were making money now. Right. And like that ends up becoming Rillick's whole thing. Like his whole thing we ultimately find out is that he doesn't want to lose his way of life, which is his income. And he wants to continue to be rich. And so in order to do that, he's going to continue to sabotage the folks who come to Gloam because they are infringing upon his ability to make profits in the same way that he has always made profits. And Um, like that's a really interesting situation too, because it's not so black and white as we'll just figure it out for like, you know, like too bad, too bad. So sad. It's gone. Bye. Good luck on the next thing. Um, because the reality is, and, and we, you know, we do find out with Relic, but also in our real world is like entire economies, um, entire towns, entire, uh, areas are based upon these, uh, energy 
consumption or like this energy production. Um, and like, that's why there are like ghost town mining tours now because the mine shut down and there was no more source of income and then they all had to leave. Um, and so like, there's a real sense of like, okay, if we move away from, um, finite sources of energy and go to renewables, how do we help people? And while Rillick is not necessarily thinking that deeply, he's mostly in it for the, the capitalist gain. Um, like there is that facet to the conversation, which I find that's really interesting. Um, because yeah, every, everybody is, is being affected by the loss of the resource on the planet. And the, the most, uh, devastating thing about all of this is even when they get to Abydos and, and their new capital, Dierna, um, they have a life-giving moss that they're, that they're using. It's like a, a new, a new resource. And this moss is starting to wilt away and everybody is still going about their business as if nothing is going wrong and they won't actually acknowledge the, the circumstances of, of what they're in. Right. So the situation's pretty dire, right? They're on this new sister planet. And I feel like they're going to run into another situation of like, let's ignore the problem and pretend it doesn't exist. Likewise, right. comparing right. that to our, our own world, it's like, hey, this resource that we are like oil, like you can try to keep digging deeper and deeper and deeper for it. It is, it is going to run out, but you're going to have devastating consequences for the rest of the world. And if we don't recognize like that that needs to end and we just keep going about our business. Like nothing needs to change. Like we're not going to acknowledge those circumstances. And, and there's this quote, uh, we built our entire civilization by exploiting the resources of Glome, And now we reap the rewards of our mistakes. And, Ooh. you know, you think about the, the reaping rewards the rewards, of our mistakes. but what about the rewards of our mistakes, right? Like the rewards of our mistakes is not a good thing. Those are no. Those are uh, punishments. Those are uh, consequences of one's actions. And the people are still a little bit uh, ignorant of the issue happening, right? And, and that kind of leads us to the idea of, of like history with this planet and like what are people actually being told about what happened on, on Globe? Like, do they even know the full extent of, of what went down in the mines and, and what had happened? Um, that's like a, another conversation I guess we could potentially have like yeah. the way in which history is presented in this book. Let's, let's do that because one thing that I found that was so interesting in this book, uh, again, that we also see in Padawan. I love it. I love to see it. And we also see in Thrawn because of Thrawn, of course, like Thrawn looks at one piece of art and he's like, uh, yes, I can tell the entire culture based on this one piece of art, you know? And then he like, monologues for two pages to Aralani. <laughs> anyway, but like the point being is that there's a lot of uh history telling through artwork in this story and our characters are learning about the history through this artwork and interpreting the art um to better understand the history and ultimately there are some revelations that they didn't expect uh and i found that to be really interesting and also this tool of using art as opposed to the written word which we know is not as popular in the star wars universe um as art uh to talk about history um but also how a lot of this history that they do find and do come across is lost yeah, most notable of which is the fact that the the minerals that were being mined uh, turned the catacoot into monsters who attacked the city, and that was when 
the Kataku imprisoned them in the mines and abandoned the city to go to Abadas. Like that was the whole impetus. Imprisoned them in the mines. Leave the city. Like that's the most wild thing about all of this is they didn't just leave Gloam because it was an uninhabitable planet. They left because they were faced with uh, monsters who were the direct result of, of, of their, of what they were doing there. Like all of these Kataku who, came under the miner's curse the rot and the lungs that turned them into these creatures it's it's horrible and we and we get to see the metamorphosis with uh with relic which i thought was um terrifying it was it was definitely terrifying we've never really seen something like that quite in star wars a little bit in dark legends there is one star wars story in there from george about like a guy turning into a werewolf or a werewolf of something i forget what the exact details are but oh yeah yeah um it's just it's uh, it's insanity to think that this was withheld from public knowledge and um Midic, who is the daughter of Kiddick, and Kiddick is the minister of works on the Grand Council, um, also Relic's cousin, Midic comes to understand that everything she knew about their history was a lie. And it leads to this quote from um Dietrich, and Dietrich says, Stories change in telling, histories are rewritten, events forgotten. It doesn't mean that anyone lied, just that it's been so long they've forgotten the truth, which is a really, 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 really good piece of writing by George Mann, because that is just that is some juicy stuff right there. Right. The, the idea of history is, is not we're we're lying about history. It's that it, it so much time passes from these events that people forget the truth because they they don't talk about them enough or it's like who is writing the history, right? It's a, it's an issue that we deal with in our own world in our K through 12 education is like, who are, who are the people writing these history books? And often it's, it was for a very long time and it is white people and whitewashing history. Right. And, and I think this quote from Dietrich is so interesting because it's really, um, I don't know if pragmatic is the right word, but it's like really, it's a neutral statement. Uh, it doesn't mean that anyone lied is what I hinge on here because it explicitly says like histories are rewritten. Um, and like that is a deliberate act in, in like somebody has to make a deliberate choice to write a history in a certain way with a certain lens. And the reality is sometimes people are lying. Yes, definitely. And, and they are choosing not to look at through a certain lens because they know that that outcome is unfavorable to them or to somebody like a, like a interest or like a party that they have an interest in. And, and like, that's interesting. Um, I mean, I do agree that like over time, history gets told one way for so long that, you know, like for Middick, who is like, oh my gosh, my whole history has been a lie. Like that's not Middick's fault, nor is that necessarily Middick's direct teacher's fault. Right. Um, but like somebody made a deliberate action at some point to conceal a, an important facet of that history. Uh, and like, that's, what's really interesting. And of course, like when that facet gets brought back up, uh, like at least in our real world with like the pushback to the 1619 project, even though, I don't know, I listened to that podcast uh when it came out or after it came out and i was like this is really basic vital important obvious knowledge like this is not 
I don't know. I didn't think it was that spicy in the sense that like, I was like, oh yeah, of course. Like you, you hear the pushback to it and you think very surface level stuff that people can't even come to accept or, or acknowledge is what you're kind or of saying. Or just like, right? yeah, or like what I understand to be the very obvious history of, of like the, the legacy of black people in America and like slavery in the U S I know I'm, I'm going, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm talking more about our world than the book. I apologize. Um, but like, like I was like, oh yeah, this is super obvious, but like there are some people who are simply never taught that way over generations. And yes, somebody made the choice to not teach it that way. And yes, people are making the choice every time that the textbook goes to be updated to not update it in that way. Um, but it's not like that person's fault that they don't know that, you know? Um, so Middick being like, wow, everything has changed for me. It's not, it's not their fault that they don't know that. Um, but like, it's what you do once your eyes are opened. Um, and I think that's like the really important piece of that. Uh, and ultimately what they choose to do with Rillick at the end is a, is a piece of that compassion, a piece of that healing, a piece of that moving forward of like, no, there's nothing we can do for Rillick to reverse his condition, to reverse the minor's curse, but we can keep him comfortable um, and care for him in that process. And like, it's one person, but like, that's a, that's an act of healing and an act of compassion. Now, as we're talking about real world examples of, of what we're seeing through this book. I think that's what this book really shines for me and you again, the idea of like environmentalism and, and history and, and with history, like narrowing it down even more to star Wars and not, not our own world, but within the star Wars galaxy and histories there that have been told, my mind jumps to the Jedi order and the Jedi and the Sith have a very long history that can, you could probably read about as part of the EU, but we and the current Canon have not really unraveled that quite yet. So we as readers and, and, and people who absorb this content, like we have also not gotten that, that full history quite yet. And with, with the Jedi order, they have not shared that history to mm. the people around them. Right. That's why we're going back in time to phase two, right? It's like the whole impetus for phase two is the idea of like what histories are rewritten and like what events are forgotten. And right. just that it's been so long, they've forgotten the truth. Right. Phase one happens, like the leveler attacks the Republic, Marciano Rowe attacks the Republic because it's been so long since the days of Marta Rowe, since the days of the mother and the path of the open hand and, and, um, and the birth of the leveler within the galaxy, uh, the egg hatching, that people have forgotten the truth. And it's why they're dealt such a devastating blow. And it's why we have to now go back as readers to learn that history, but also like we're learning the history through what our characters are experiencing back then, right? So. Um, mm -hmm. I thought this is like sort of a metatextual thing here as well of just like, this is the reason we're here. Like we have to understand the real true history, not the way that the story has changed over time for our right. heroes to like win in phase three. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. 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 Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so like, yes, about that point. You're, you're, you're absolutely right about understanding that context. Um, I would love to know like uh, about the miner's curse. Like I, we talked a little bit off air about some of your thoughts on the miner's curse um, and what you thought it could speak to a little bit within, um, you know, within the star Wars realm. And I of course connected it to the real world because like, this is, this is me uh, we're talking about. Um, and so I'd love to know your thoughts if you'd like to share them. I was really thinking of the idea of, of the miner's curse and, and how, um, the minerals, uh, it, 
the minerals were described as harmless in their natural state, but it wasn't until they act interact with the catechute blood that they actually alter the physiology and and turn any of the healthy cells within a catechute into copies of the mineral cell. So it literally colonizes the host. And when I saw the word colonizes, like you and I have talked a lot about the idea of like, we are all the Republic and we're talking about the Pathfinder teams as sort of the Jedi missionaries who are going out in the galaxy and spreading the word of the Republic, learning about people coming to the aid of other people. This is like really in the earlier days of the High Republic. And as we know it in phase two, Lena So is on her mission with her great works and spreading Mm. the High Republic, uh, the the Republic into so many other planets um, within the galaxy and bringing more planets in, right? We know that Chagrudas are still not a part of the Republic, but they are going to eventually be um, very soon, which I wonder if we'll hear about that or catch wind of it in phase two uh, because the timeline matches up. So it was just really interesting how, like, I guess if we think of of the mineral, um, maybe the mineral, uh, the minerals are harmless in their natural state. We can think of the mineral as like unity, right? Like unity is a good thing in its natural state, but if you're interacting with unity in the wrong way and, and spreading it the wrong way, uh, you're colonizing the mm. host. You're colonizing the galaxy in this in this way. So I was sort of thinking about about it in that context and i thought maybe this is sort of a larger metaphor eventually for like what the republic will do to the galaxy and the division it will create that we see in the prequel trilogy and the clone wars when um, planets are threatening to finally leave the republic right you can only bend something so much until it snaps um and then this Mm. last quote here was that you know even when the host eventually dies those parasitic minerals try to keep it going even beyond the point of death which we know our zombies. We're, we're getting our catacute zombies and zombies. Um, oh my gosh. Zombies. Yeah. We can talk about that. In a zombies. Minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, zombies, I thought they were actually like levelers at first. I thought this was going to be like a leveler origin story. And I was like, are these levelers? Yeah. like our catacutes levelers? And I thought that would have been so interesting to think the levelers sprung from greed and, and the pursuit of richness, but um, that it did not end up being the case. It wasn't that deep, but if we think of the host as the galaxy, and the uh, minerals being unity and interacting with unity in the wrong way, we think of the empire, right? The empire tries to create unity through fear and law and order. Um, so when you have those things interact in that way, um, the host might die. The empire is birthed, but those parasitic minerals keep trying to spread regardless of the death of the host. Um, and I thought that was an interesting Interesting metaphor potentially for the way that the empire continues to exert its influence in the galaxy, um, despite at you know the republic's uh, slash empire's core, it's sort of a soulless shell um, that is mm. that the people are are crumbling under and being oppressed under. Um, so I thought that was interesting. Maybe I'm on to something. Maybe I'm spouting nonsense. I have no idea. I mean, you know <laughs> what? This is this is our show. We can talk. We can talk nonsense or stuff and nobody can stop us i know but that's why we're here for each other though because we have to we have to validate each other's thoughts because we never hear the listener yeah right right right. validate (laughs) each other and also you know speak equal amounts of nonsense and stuff you know yes Um, yeah but but i guess like we're losing listeners as we speak right they're just like (laughs) turning it off um so sorry guys what is this Um, metaphor nonsense dumbass (laughs) yeah it was a real real stretch but uh okay good job (laughs) Uh, weird flex brad Uh, goodbye unsubscribe (laughs) 
<laughs> no, but honestly, like if you're thinking about it in that way, it's like the parasitic materials keep going even after the person like the host has died. You could talk about that, not necessarily in the physical sense, but also just in the spiritual sense. Like if if the the mineral then is parasitic and oppressive and sucking the life out of its host, um, they're absolutely doing that is like in a spiritual emotional sense like how much can how much order law and order can we bang into the public in order for them to uh not want to resist any further you know like how much how much can we place upon them how much how heavy can the weight get um before they just give up give up give up hope um so that's an interesting thought there I, I mean, I thought about this in sense with just um, mineral mineral overuse and mineral exploitation, right? Uh, or like resource exploitation, um, because like ultimately the resource, you know, oil, uh, coal, these things naturally exist in our world, um, and then we realize these things can power things, and so we start to use them, not even realizing at the very beginning that they were harming us in the way that they were. And even though we have recognized their harms at this point, we still choose to use these um, methods of production, methods of energy production, uh, and and ultimately are killing ourselves in the process. Um, uh, maybe that's more like a literal reading of that, but. Um, that's just what immediately came to my mind at least right like taking taking minerals that are, are again harmless in their natural state like these these resources existed on our world long before we were here and unfortunately won't exist on this world long after we're here um but taking right. them from their natural state into into an unnatural state and literally altering the the physiology of the planet right like the we're we're altering the planet itself you know we've talked a lot about the themes and a lot about like the 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 real world um, connections to the, some of the themes in these stories. Uh, but I would really like to just talk about how freaking cool it is that this book is about zombies and has zombies oh, in it. Yeah. And every time, every time we got closer to the discussion of zombies in this book, I would write zombies or zombs like with an exclamation point. <laughs> um, cause I was just like, I can't believe this is happening. And then it like actually happened and we learned the history and like the miners curse and like how this affected them. And like, Oh my God, Brad, it's zombies. And I didn't realize I was a zombie person, but I'm just so thrilled. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. I'm thinking of that one song, like zombie, like zombie, zombie. Should have like listened to that. Um, I don't know if George Mann made a Spotify playlist for um, Quest for the Hidden City. I know Zoraida made one for Convergence, um, mm. but he should put that song on there for sure. <laughs> exactly. I, I don't know who out there, you probably don't understand because I, I feel like I'm showing my age now, of course. That's, I always do this on the podcast and I just, my back You're starts so hurting and then I take the K now. And Brad, then... you're practically going to the home. I mean, uh, I mean, whew. wow. Almost 30. Jesus Christ. I will say the action of this book though was really well written. Like just some oh, yeah. great stuff in here. Um, even though we were navigating a lot of different groups, like once they actually linked up and they were sort of fighting in that final area where it's the vast cavern and they take down the, uh, the, uh, or the, it's just a, she a ceiling. I think they take down using the force together, um, to seal mm. in the monsters. And it's actually like ends up crumbling the entire area. Um, right. All of that was really great. And just, you know, the lightsaber colors, uh, in the darkness. And, um, also like, 
I think pretty notable, like with the environment we're in and the way that the zombies are seen through the forest. We know that, um, (gasps) we know that Ruper sees the force as a a melting pot of shimmering colors. Each life, no matter how large or small contributing to the overall pattern, the shining glow. It was a web that stretched throughout the entire galaxy, linking all living things. And so like, as they're navigating this area, um, her friends around her are like bright green, bright pink, blue, yellow. And the farther out she goes, the more muddled those muddled those colors become into like blacks and grays and midnight purples and bruised reds. Uh, and it's when she's um, searching for her friends, Rock, uh, he's sort of the spark of life touching the force. And she uh, manages to find him regardless of how uncomfortable that experience is of navigating that murky, muddled color of the forest right um and and the zombies sort of representing that as well they're like dark presence uh they're mm-hmm. a dark presence within the force and um it's unnerving for somebody like ruper who wants to see the force as a colorful a colorful thing but her ability to rise to the occasion and still be a hero regardless of that threat and regardless of that um sort of nameless terror so to speak uh really speaks to her uh, inner strength and her bravery despite the zombies yeah totally and it's also i think super interesting like her connection to the force because for both her and rock um they were both led to that temple um yes and and like i think that was just such an interesting piece that they like the force kind of both brought them there um i don't know if i have anything more to say about that but like the way that rupert interacts with the force and that salandra is encouraging her to kind of expand her reach and senses within the force i think is like a really interesting way to visualize that there's a great quote here from from so to uh rupert as we're i guess as we're talking about them but um so says i'm not sure any of us ever truly understand the force rupert even Master mm. Yoda and others on the council, we train our entire lives to learn how to harness abilities it grants us and responsibilities. Uh, we must learn the trust in ourselves through the force. Um, but there are no certainties. All we can do is put our faith in ourselves and allow others uh, and allow the force to guide us towards the truth. Right. Um, and yeah, it's interesting too, because we know so we learned that so lost her Padawan a long time ago, which I thought was interesting um, and also a bit tragic. So. Yeah, she understands how hard it is to to let go and to kind of move past move past the uncertainty and to actually like restore faith in ourselves. And I think um, Rupert is sort of understanding that in her story as she as she's really trying to get a grasp on like what's the point of the Jedi in the galaxy. And I don't really know what the Force is telling me. I mean, I, this is how I see it, but I don't know what it like, technically means. And to see her in this book actually use the force in a way that um helps her friends um was great it was a great time like i i think their relationship was was fantastic i'd love to learn more about each of them together and what their adventures look yeah. like in the future even beyond phase two and um maybe my excitement for them means they're gonna die of course because that's what happens <laughs> well it's interesting because they kind of like <laughs> they're, they're splitting they're splitting up by the end of the book like um right like Rupert's gonna go to batu and be on the temple there for a while. And Salandra is going to go to Jeddah and kind of fulfill that oh, part of no. her story. <laughs> and yeah, we're right. We're right. I don't know if it's going to go so well for Salandra. We will see. Oh um, no. Right. But <laughs> sorry. Sorry to bring that one up. Um, 
but I, but I think it's so interesting, like the lesson that Rupert ultimately learns in this story for herself. Um, she had come to Abydos looking for excitement, but she was leaving knowing that the real adventure wasn't so much about the scary monsters and exciting battles, but about the people she'd met along the way. Out on the frontier, there were so many people who needed her help. And in that way, her adventure was really just beginning. She smiled and looked up at the clear sky, imagining all the worlds beyond the pale horizon. She couldn't wait to see one couldn't wait to see which one of them she'd visit next. So there's this like sense that the relationships that she made with da uh, with Doss and and with the catacute and and with her, you know, her strengthening her relationship with Salandra and everyone else they kind of meet along this journey ultimately is like the real boon for her and um I think that speaks to like the smallness of the story and also like the middle gradeness of the story which are all, you know, good things um but also just to the like desire to want to explore more with these characters i know we started this conversation talking about zombies and then we we got into some <laughs> we got into like <laughs> to, characters and to some heartfelt and you know yeah, heartfelt yeah. stuff here but that shows the the duality of this book so to speak right you get the spooky, you get the monsters, you get the crazy, and then you, you get, get the, the heart and you get the, you get the beating heart of this book, which is, I think, pretty much Rupert, right? Like the, again, like people she meets around her and how that changes her. And, um, that's what I love the most about these, these middle grade stories is, uh, as much as it is a, a story about self-discovery, like every single story that we've gotten so far in the higher public these Jedi become who they are because of the people around them, right? Like race to crash point tower. Ram is like, Oh, I'm, I know my place in the galaxy. Like as he stands side by side with like Lula Talisola and, and his other friends. Right. So that's the, the greatest part about the book. And it's why Rupert is on the cover of the book and she's not alone. Right. She is with somebody else because she gets by with the help of everybody else. Um, despite the zombies, uh, well, I don't know if you have anything more to say, but can we get into our odds and ends here to wrap up our discussion? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Uh, which one do you want to go? You want to go first? You want to, you have a, you have a spicy one that you want to start with? Uh, is it spicy? Let's open. I, I just wrote a page number. What did I write? <sighs> Even though I wrote this page number down like an hour ago, I forgot what it was. Oh, it is spicy. <laughs> of course it is. It has to do with Jetta. <laughs> okay. Uh, so Lander, well, you know, of course, wants to make the pilgrimage to Jeddah. It has been many years since I observed this season of light. Fascinating. What is that? And looked upon my reflection in the Kyber mirrors. I feel like those have been mentioned before. Uh, beneath the Dome of Deliverance. That's all capitalized. What in the world is that? Fascinated. Uh, and that there are pilgrims of many, like, religious force sects that uh, see Jeddah as a place of worship. And I'm just really fascinated to dive further into that. Um, and I really can't wait, but also can wait to do not kill everybody I love, you know? <laughs> well, the reflection, uh, reflection day, Kyber mirrors, those are actually part of the life day treasury by George Mann. Um, that story. So something we might need to check out before battle of Jeddah. So much to do, so much to do. <laughs> <laughs> My odds and ends here, uh, Rillick named his ship the Foundling, uh, or named Ooh, a yeah. ship the Foundling. I think it's his ship uh, because he, quote, always believed in helping waifs and strays, those who were lost and needed help. And, of course, I think of our, our daddy, Jin Jaren, in The Mandalorian, and the fact that 
uh, he was brought in as a, a foundling. So anytime the word foundling pops up in Star Wars, my like ears perk up and I'm like, you know, close as close as I can be to whatever I'm reading or watching because I'm like, oh, foundling. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was an interesting way to, to, to describe that. And um, Din Djarin as a, as a kid was certainly somebody who was lost and needed help after losing both his parents um, against the Separatists. So unfortunately, he got looped into a cult, but you know. He is who he is today because of that. <laughs> unfortunate. Unfortunate. Oh, um, man. Uh, okay, I have another one. I have another one. Page 108. Rupert asks, uh, you know, or Dietrich asks, could they be hostile? Says, Rupert says, doesn't matter. You know, there's someone out there in need alone on this dangerous world. They might need our help, but, it isn't, but isn't it our duty to try? I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. Let's talk about why. It's good because um, if you are like us and you enjoy the ever living heck out of Andor, uh, we know that Nemec, his manifesto, like revolves around the fact that the people have to just try. Um, people have to keep trying. And I love that this idea of trying has kind of popped up multiple times in this year of Star Wars. Uh, stories because the idea of trying is not a popular one within the Star Wars world because the most popular quote uh, or idea revolving around trying is Yoda's do or do not there is no try uh, which kind of eliminates the which I understand like the point of that quote but it eliminates um, a shade of gray like within that conversation of like the action <laughs> right and I love this idea of trying because it's it's an earnest action it's something that is um, consciously done earnestly done and and oftentimes courageous to try to do something that you know you may not be proficient at or that you may not succeed at uh is something that is uh brave and i think that like on a personal note like i'm sorry i'm like oh let's, let's bring it back to myself and let's bring it back to the world and like sometimes it's like sarah and this made me cry in the real world anyway um I think so much for so long, I always pressured, had a lot of pressure on myself to be like, oh, I have to actually do it. Like if I'm going to do it, I have to be good at it. Um, because a lot of things came easy to me growing up. And so, you know, like when something became a challenge, I wouldn't even try because I was like, it's too hard. It's too hard. It's too much effort. I'm like, I feel like I've done a lot of deconstruction of that recently and I'm actually trying things and I'm like learning new things. And like that, that feels good. Right. Because like I'm making an earnest effort. And I love that that, um, idea has popped up in Star Wars a couple of times recently. That's it. That's what I have to say. I will stop talking about myself now. Yeah, I love the idea of how the word try has been flipped on its head because we know Yoda. I mean, Yoda says that. But all of those years while the rebellion is forming and fighting its ass off, what is he doing? He is do notting. He's doing nothing. He's do not. Right? He's not even trying. You got to take action. You got to you got to try something. Right? Cuz otherwise you don't know if it'll work. Um and otherwise you might not fail because sometimes the greatest teacher failure is right. And that's so interesting for Yoda to say that to Luke, because the idea of failure is really the direct, direct result of trying something and maybe failing, right? Like, mm, mm. anyways, I don't make any sense, but you know, I tried. That's okay. I don't either. <laughs> that's why this is great. It's our podcast. We got to We have to, we have to make some amount of sense and then we have to make some amount of no sense. Absolutely. That's the point. Yeah. That's how it yeah. works. 
Uh, my next odds and ends here, uh, Das and Spence, father and son in Star Wars, another father-son relationship. Unfortunately, uh, uh, Spence is a single father, which means there's another dead mother in Star Wars, unfortunately, unfortunately. So my odds and ends here is that they are uh, a direct connection to Sunshine Dobbs, who we know is from Path of Deceit. Mm, uh, yes. And they tried to go on a mission because... Spence is a prospector. He's sort of teaching everything to Doss and how to, how to live in the world, how to make a fortune, find new worlds, find treasure, um, find opportunities before everybody else could. Um, Cause this is the, this is the time of prospecting in the galaxy. Like, this is a uh, hyperspace is being explored and mapped as we, as we speak. Uh, and so they got stranded on Gloam because they went on a mission with sunshine, sunshine Dobbs to a, a, a planet, a score that only comes along once in a generation. Um, it's at the end of a hyperspace lane. It's been there for a millennia. It's a quote paradise beyond anyone's wildest imaginings. Mm-hmm. And Sunshine leaves them. He ditches them. He ditches them. What a what an ass. What an ass. Um, but this is obviously this planet that Das and Spence almost went to is the leveler homeworld. It's the one that we get an angling of. It's some other materials. Uh, this is Planet X, I'm imagining. Planet X is the planet. Ooh. It's the unnamed planet of the levelers. That's just my theory. And I don't even know if it's as much of a theory as sort of uh, an unspoken truth at this point. But <laughs> we know the next middle grade novel is Quest for Planet X, which that true. It seems to be like kind of where we're going here. So um, Planet X is going to be that planet everybody's racing to. Um, this is going to be written by Tessa Gratton. So I'm excited to see what Should that's all about should be good yeah i was like oh a paradise interesting lovely oh wait it doesn't have a name and sunshine dobbs hmm suspicious <laughs> maybe not so much a paradise is it all, con- is it all connected <laughs> i don't know probably <laughs> yeah but ah, oh, dang i do love the mention though of batu as well like sunshine was supposed yes. to take them back to batu um and we know quest for planet x does take place on batu at least initially so I'm thinking Das and Spence will will spend some more time with them, possibly. Maybe drop them off at Batu. So. Yeah, more time with Das and Spence. I really want to get to know them better, especially because at the end of this book, Das kind of has this um uh not change of heart, but like spark where he's like, I'm really interested in being a pathfinder, not a prospector. Um so I think that could be an interesting exploration for him as a young man. I do not think I have any more odds and ends, do you? No, I, I don't either. So I think that basically wraps up our discussion here on Quest for the Hidden City. So um, I guess you could say the Hidden City is not so hidden after we talked about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, you know, I thought that was a thought that was a good joke. Let me know in the in the comments of this episode <laughs> if you like that joke. I'll make more. Yeah, tweet it. Tweet uh, it. Was it a good joke? Um, actually, don't tell us if it's not. We'll be, we'll be a little sad. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that wraps up our discussion today on Quest for the Hidden City by George Mann. Very exciting book. Very fun. Glad I got to go on this adventure. And next time we're going to be talking about Convergence by Zoraida Cordova. It's our final book of the year. Yes, so excited. And then Battle of Jeddah is shortly after that. It's going to be here sooner than we realize, but um, I'm super stoked. Any, Any final words, though, on Quest for the Hidden City before we close out? Uh, just a thank you to having this conversation with me. A lot that dives into a lot of the themes and, um, yeah, that that's pretty much it. I really enjoyed this book and I look forward to how um now that we've discussed both the YA and the middle grade of 
phase two wave one, how they're going to close out these stories in phase two or, oh, geez, in wave two, phase two, phase two, wave two. Christ. I Here never, we go again. I'm never, I'm, I love the song. I love the song. Um, never, never going to get it right. Um, but uh, once we have our convergence conversation, how convergence fits into that whole picture, I'm really looking forward to all of it. So hopefully you'll continue to join us listeners as we discuss yeah. the higher public. Well, as I mentioned up front, if you want to hear more from us on the High Republic, follow our socials, Hive, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you name it. Sarah and I are also on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Goodreads, so you can see what we're saying, what we're watching, what we're reading. And if you have a couple extra minutes in your day, please leave us a written five-star review if you could, if you love the episode and want everybody else to hear about it and let us know what you thought. That would be super appreciated. Helps other folks find the show. We also have a Patreon. As you probably know, if you've gotten this far in the episode and you've listened to us before, we're tears started just a dollar. And we are so grateful to everyone who listens to the podcast, but specifically to our Patreons, our patrons who really help make this show happen on a week to week basis. So special thanks to Amy, Brian, Cheryl, Clay, Danny, Davis, Deborah, Dylan, Huang, Jen, Knights of Ren, Leanne, Levi, Lucy, Lindsay, Rob, Saber Bouquet, Santa, Skytalker, Steven, Tom, and Travis. We very much appreciate your support and thank you to everyone who listens all the way to the end of the episode you're the best thank you thank you all so much for listening and until next time may the force be with you always bye